Hello, you shiny, happy people holding hands. It's Allison Dixon back again to share a little more madness with you in an episode of Ding Dong Ditch, the mini version of Ding Dong Darkness Time. Now, anyone who knows me and has listened to some previous episodes of this show is likely aware I'm a bit of a psychology geek. Also, as of this recording in early September of 2022, I've spent the last few months with my head buried in research for Class of Cults. That's the upcoming third season of this show. As such, I have a lot on my mind about all the insane ways in which people can influence each other. So I decided to give you a small taste of what's to come by talking about a psychiatric phenomenon we often see in cultic situations, but has also been at the center of a lot of gruesome and infamous murder cases. I'm talking folie adieu, or madness of two. However, this can include many more people than that. So gather round and have a listen, won't you? And if you brought along a special murder buddy, please refrain from doing any murders until after the show. start off light. And by that, I mean, in the first story I'm about to share, no one died. In 2016, a family down in Australia took a road trip that still haunts them and their community years later. The Tromps ran a successful farm in the town of Sylvan, which is just outside of Melbourne. Mark Tromp and his wife Jacoba shared their home with their three adult children, Rihanna, Mitchell, and Ella, all three of whom were in their 20s at the time of this story. On August 29th, Mark piled the family into Ella's silver Peugeot wagon to go for a nice little drive, only nothing about this outing was typical. For one thing, Mark insisted that no one bring their phones or any other possessions along for the ride. And he had no plan of a destination in mind. So it seemed from all appearances, the Tromps weren't looking to take a leisurely sojourn. They were more fleeing from something. But from what? I'll get to that in a second. About 20 miles into the trip, it was discovered the middle son Mitchell still had his phone with him, but he was forced to throw it out the window in order that they not be tracked. Mark continued driving north throughout the night, but by 7 a.m. the following morning of August 30th, after the family had traveled around 500 miles, Mitchell decided he'd had enough of whatever insanity his family had embarked on. In a town just outside Sydney, he left everyone behind and embarked on the long trek home via train. Not much later, the remaining family ended up in a tourist attraction called the Janolan Caves, and the two daughters, Ellen and Rihanna, both decided to steal a car and leave their parents behind. They then drove south to a town called Goulburn and reported their parents missing. Now, you have to be wondering at this point what was actually happening in that silver Peugeot as Mark was driving them farther and farther from home, and how bad it had to be that each of their kids decided to abandon them. I know I'm wondering that, though I suspect being deprived of a cell phone was at least partially to blame. You don't just quit that stuff cold turkey, no matter whose madness you're sharing. 
Unfortunately, those details haven't been made clear by the family. We can really only surmise that Mark in particular was going through a mental break and he was caught in the grip of a paranoia that had to be pretty traumatizing for the rest of the family. But it was at the point where the two daughters left that things got only weirder. After Ella and Rihanna filed the missing persons report, the two of them parted ways at a gas station. Ella wanted to go back home to care for the family's horses, but Rihanna, whose mental state was more compromised than Ella realized, did not share this desire to go back. I was unable to find what was actually said between the two of them. Uh, There are some articles behind paywalls. If any of you happen to have that further information, feel free to drop me a line. I would love to know a little more between the lines on some of this stuff if it's out there. What we do know is Ella arrived back home not long after Mitchell did. Rihanna, meanwhile, snuck into the back of a utility truck and there she fell into a catatonic state. The driver of that truck discovered her lying across the back seat, and she was unable to provide any information on herself or what had happened. She was taken to a hospital where she remained for several days. But what about the parents, Mark and Jacoba? Well, here it gets even weirder. So after the daughters left them behind, Mark began driving south back toward Melbourne again. And he arrived at a town called Wangarata, about 370 miles or 600 kilometers south of the caves. So most of the way back in the direction of their house, though a little further inland. It was at Wangarata that Mark and Jacoba became separated for reasons that are unclear. But whatever the reason, Jacoba began trekking north again via various forms of public transportation. This family was scattered in all the directions at this point. On August 31st, she was found wandering the streets of a town called Yass, about 215 miles or 350 kilometers away from where she left Mark and Wangarata. Similarly, in a troubled mental state, she was taken to the same hospital where her daughter Rihanna was being treated. And then there was one. Later that night, on August 31st, a couple driving through Wangarata reported being tailgated dangerously by someone in a silver Peugeot. When they pulled off the road, the Peugeot pulled over behind them, and the driver got out of the car and began charging at them. But before he reached them, he stopped about halfway there and stared at them for a moment. And then he just turned away and wandered into a nearby park. It is believed that this, in fact, was Mark Trump. Over the course of several days, Mitchell and Ella Trump, who appeared mentally stable, if not extremely baffled and worried by what happened to their family, appealed to the media to help find their father, stating that he wasn't in a good state of mind. It wasn't until September 3rd, nearly six days after the start of the whole ordeal, that Mark Trump was spotted running alongside a road on the outskirts of Wangarata. During that time period, the police had investigated several break-ins in the area, though none were ever directly linked to Mark. Still, just imagine this dude running around the park, woods, and streets of this town, fully gripped by the paranoia that sent him fleeing hundreds of miles away with his family. When taken into custody, he was agitated and belligerent, but was eventually released to the custody of his brother. Over time, the family recovered from this ordeal and was reunited, and all five of the Trumps, including Mark, expressed a large amount of contrition for an incident they've largely been unable to explain even to themselves. 
Today, they're running their farm as if nothing happened. But what did happen? The internet was awash in theories from drug use to chemical poisoning from some substance being used on their crops to running from debts. But the police in charge of the case were able to rule all that out. There was no history of mental health issues or drug use, and the family was in good financial standing. It ultimately came down to Mark succumbing to the effects of stress from running an otherwise very successful business. He became convinced that people were after him and they were looking to steal the family's money. In other words, stress gave way to paranoia, and from that sprung a delusion that was tantalizing, at least to some degree, to each of his family members, such that they each took on some of the beliefs, at least for a time, except for maybe Mitchell. All the others seemed to come back around once they were separated, and that seems to be a common thread throughout many of these cases. In the dynamics of foliadu and other forms of shared psychosis, the tromps fall under the subcategory folie of family. It usually starts with one person called a primary who transfers their delusion to others who are known as secondaries. Once influenced, the secondaries then reinforce the behaviors and the delusions of the primary, which then feeds back into the secondary. It's a nasty cycle and can result in something as grandly evil as serial murder featuring acts so grisly I don't even want to describe them here, or something relatively minuscule, such as believing an intruder has come into your home. The latter instance actually describes the first documented case of Foliadu. In a French study from the 19th century, a young married couple named Michael and Margaret came under the belief that someone had broken into their home to spread around dust and wear down their shoes. They found the couple caught in a bad feedback loop of sorts, one person's madness beating the other, and the term folie adieu was born there. The strength of this transferred delusion usually correlates with the strength of the bond the primary and secondary have, which is why we often see this happen with romantic couples or parents and children. But it's also affected by several other factors, such as pre-existing mental health issues, any cognitive or intelligence deficits, the level of dependency the secondary has on the primary, and the overall length of the bond. I don't think it's a coincidence that the three members of the Trump family most affected by this shared madness were the husband, wife, and eldest child. But as I said before, that story was the lighter of the ones I'm sharing today. The amuse-bouche, if you will, to borrow another French term. From here on, it's going to get pretty dark, but that's undoubtedly why you're here in the first place. Some highly notorious serial killers have operated in pairs under what is believed to be foliadu. That is to say, if not for the two people having paired up, it's almost certain that at least one of them never would have committed the murders on their own. One such infamous killer duo was Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, also known as the Toolbox Killers. The two abducted and murdered at least a half dozen teenage girls and used a variety of instruments to torture their victims, hence the Toolbox moniker. Prior to their killing spree, the two men were incarcerated together in the men's colony prison in California back in 1977. Bittaker was in for assault with a deadly weapon, and Norris was in for rape. It was there they formed a really nasty bond based mostly on a shared fantasy of raping young girls. 
Once they were both paroled, they started hanging out together and eventually made their six sadistic fantasies come true. They started by photographing potential victims and plotting routes along the remote California fire roads in a van they bought for the occasion. They assaulted and released a handful of women over time, but according to court documents, Bideker eventually escalated to murder because he worried their victims would begin to identify them. Norris would later testify for the prosecution that he objected, but eventually came around under Bideker's influence. After that first killing, it became their bread and butter. They invested in their toolkits, they dubbed their van the Murder Mac, and called what they did the birthday game, with the idea of capturing girls of varying ages as if each one would earn them a special merit badge. They were eventually arrested, tried, and convicted. Both men died in prison, though though Bideker had been sentenced to death row and eventually died of natural causes in 2019. Norris, because of his cooperation with the prosecution, had been eligible for parole in 2009, but he refused to attend the parole hearing. In early 2020, not long after Bideker, he too died of natural causes. Several criminology experts believe that while Norris was a rapist and a sociopath, he likely would not have initiated the torture and murder element without the urging of Bideker. And by the same token, though Bideker had similar sadistic tendencies, it isn't clear he would have acted on them if he didn't have a loyal partner by his side, all of which makes this another likely classic case of a fully adieu. While both of these men were the worst of their kind, the case demonstrates the capacity for evil to square itself. There are several other high-profile murder cases involving duos who might have been under the sway of Folia Dieu. In fact, as I've said before on other topics, there's enough in this category alone to do a full season of Ding Dong Darkness Time. Episode proposals would include The Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Bruno, Joseph Callinger and his son Michael, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, and the Sunset Strip Slayers, Doug Clark and Carla Bundy. What the hell is with the name Bundy anyway? And while we're on the subject of cursed names, what about Peterson, Michael Peterson, Scott Peterson, Drew Peterson, all of whom have been convicted of murdering their wives? What's in a name? Am I right? Anyway, like I said, a ton of cases, and that's without even mentioning the ones involving cults, but we'll leave that for season three. Again, Fully Adieu comes down to the close, often passive or dependent associate of a delusional person falling under the spell of those same delusions. And my final story demonstrates that dynamic to an academic level. This incident comes from the American Journal of Psychiatry and describes a couple who committed infanticide while under the spell of shared madness. Their names have been redacted, so they're simply referred to as Mr. and Mrs. A. Now, Mrs. A suffered from a schizoaffective disorder, which is to say something similar to schizophrenia, and that she was prone to disorganized thinking and speaking, hallucinations, and delusions of religious themes. She would tell anyone who listened that her husband was one of the two witnesses from the book of Revelation, and then the next day she would believe he was the Antichrist. Additionally, she believed most people were possessed by the devil. Now, Mr. and Mrs. A were the parents of two children aged 18 months and four months, babies in other words, 
And as each month passed, Mrs. A became more and more incapacitated by her mental illness. She could no longer perform daily functions like driving, taking care of her home, paying her bills, or even feeding herself. And unfortunately for her children, the government, as well as baby formula manufacturers, made it onto her list of perceived enemies. Despite coming up with multiple alternative ways to feed the infant, eventually he succumbed to starvation. When he was brought into the hospital unbreathing and subsequently pronounced dead, Mr. and Mrs. A prayed vehemently to God to bring the baby back to life, even insisting that the child's eyes were moving. This only traumatized the emergency department staff and the couple was soon arrested and put through a battery of psychiatric testing. Obviously, their mother was deemed unfit to stand any sort of trial. That is to say, unless a defendant has any sense of the charges they're facing or the legal procedures involved in trying them, then they cannot stand trial until their competency has been restored. So Mrs. A was hospitalized to that end. But what about Mr. A? After all, the whole point of this episode is that it takes two to tango. So how and why did he stand idly by while his infant son starved to death under his wife's delusional behavior? Put simply, he too began to believe as she did. They met at a church retreat and Mr. A decided, after a relatively normal life of maybe doing a little partying here and there, that he was ready to find God. The two soon married and together they embarked on a happy spiritual life together while being heavily involved in their church. Unfortunately, once Mrs. A began to develop symptoms of psychosis, Mr. A found himself beginning to adhere to some of them. He joined her in her belief that modern medicine was poisoning people, that God had the power to heal all. This also means he joined his psychotic wife in helping her refuse the psychiatric care she so desperately needed. Because the further he dove into the church, the more he began to see that God was controlling the fates of all. So when his son died, he accepted that the child did starve to death, but that it was still part of God's plan to send the child to heaven. Mr. A tested normal in all of his mental health evaluations. He had none of the disorganized thinking or hallucinations his wife had. He was able to work, care for himself, pay the bills, But his personality tests revealed passive and dependent traits with a twist of narcissism, which ended up being the perfect foil for taking on Mrs. A's delusions and ended up leading to the death of one of their children. After some resistance, he finally allowed his attorney to use a shared psychosis defense at the trial. And because it was successful, he only spent a month in jail. The journal did not state the outcome of the mother or whether she ever became competent to stand trial. But what led the psychiatrists to differentiate Mr. A's afflictions as delusional as opposed to merely hyper-religious? Well, in diagnosing these cases, it's important to distinguish between a delusion and what is referred to as an overvalued idea, which is to say you can have a belief that is shared largely by the surrounding society and culture. For instance, to eat healthy and exercise is considered a socially acceptable premise. But some people overvalue that culturally acceptable idea to the point they begin starving themselves and exercising to such an excess that they develop an eating disorder of some kind. Delusions, on the other hand, happen when someone's deeply held conviction runs counter to what's generally considered acceptable in the surrounding culture. 
Mr. and Mrs. A's beliefs about God, medicine, nutrition, etc. were not endorsed at all by their church, let alone doctors or most of society. The thinking at its core was irrational, therefore it was deemed delusional. Mr. A's insanity defense was therefore accepted. Given his innate personality, he was highly susceptible to his wife's psychosis. He took it in, he reinforced it, he fed it back to her, and so on and so forth. The only thing that came of it was tragedy. Eventually, Mr. A separated from his wife and his delusions eventually faded. Now, folia do is not a separate entry in the most recent edition of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is used to diagnose people with specific diseases of the mind. It's instead filed under a much more nebulous standard of diagnosis for delusional partners under the schizophrenia spectrum, and only specifies that people can share some symptoms of a dominant partner's psychotic illness without having any other markers of psychosis. That sounds a lot like the situation with Mr. A. All of this is to say, however, without a more concrete diagnosis of shared psychosis, it makes using something like fully ado an increasingly ineffective defense in court. And depending on how you feel about all this, that could either be a good thing or a bad thing. It's probably no secret how I feel. I've studied enough cults and other instances of malignant influence to know how susceptible certain people can be to something like shared madness. Hell, even back in season one of this show, my co-host Chris and I talked about the dancing plagues of the Middle Ages, another prime example of shared delusion brought to a massive scale. Thanks to social media, we've witnessed ideas take hold of a population and spread like wildfire to disastrous consequences. Not simply overvalued ideas, but straight up kitten eating, adrenochrome slurping, pedophiles and pizza restaurant basement delusions. This stuff is no joke. And the scary part is you can be at risk without even realizing it. The biggest lie humans ever told themselves is that something would never happen to them. As I said in last week's episode about chemical weapons in World War I, people are complicated as hell. They're also quite powerful when they team up. Just be sure when you find the Robin to your Batman, you're able to both distinguish the moon from the bat signal. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this one. I'm noticing a lot of new listeners checking out the pod lately, and I'm so glad you're here and hope you'll continue to stick around. Send me some ideas at ddarknesstime at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter if you so desire at ddarknesstime. If you love what you hear, please drop a review on iTunes if you have a moment or hit that rating button on Spotify next time you see it. All of it helps keep my perhaps delusional hope alive that I'll one day have a vast meeting empire, or at least a HelloFresh sponsorship. Come on, HF, send me one of them sweet, sweet dinner boxes. A girl's gotta eat. All right, I'll see you back here next week. Until then, be good, you little ding-dongs.